ask you to turn to two passages of Scripture. And if you didn't bring a Bible, it will be on the screen behind me, so you can read it. Um, the first passage and the primary passage is John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. So John 1, 14 through 18. Open it up and put one of those sheets in your worship folder in there. And then also turn to the second book of the Bible, which is Exodus. And I want you to turn to chapter 33 and 34. Exodus 33 and 34. So those are the two texts this morning that are divinely connected, as I hope you will see. John 1 and Exodus 33 and 34. Well, This morning we begin a four-part series of messages intended to outline the DNA of the church according to what we believe the scripture teaches. Now, most of us are familiar, at least marginally, with the idea of DNA that we carry in each of us, this genetic code that, um, that determined what your eye color was going to be, how tall you were going to be, your skin color, all of those things. You carry that in you, and it has formed and determined who you are physically. So we're at least marginally aware of what DNA does. We carry it in us. It is the essence of who we are physically, and it determines us. Um, and I think it's a helpful way of thinking about and talking about the core factors that make a church a truly Christian church, to talk about what is the DNA of God's family, which is called the church. And the church, for those who may be new to the concept of church, is not a building. It is the gathering together of the disciples of Christ for the purpose of worship and edification. That is what the church is. It's simply a family, a gathering of believers. So what is, what is the DNA of what makes that organism tick and forms it and transforms it? What are those non-negotiable factors that make us and form us into the people God created us and also bled for us on the cross to be? Now, let me give an analogy because maybe this will help. Um, Maybe for some of you it might not. But if you walk into a Starbucks and you pay close attention and make observations as to what you see, you will start to discern a certain DNA as to what makes that particular organization tick, regardless of whether you've read their core values or their philosophy of doing business. You walk or you drive into a strip mall, hungry or craving a cup of joe, and you look for that symbol, you know, that green symbol with a half-naked mermaid on it you know, or a siren, whatever she is, and you know, Starbucks. All Starbucks have that same logo. You walk inside, and all of them are decorated relatively the same way. They carry the same merchandise. You walk up to the the barista, and you ask for one of three sizes, tall, grande, or venti. You don't walk up and ask for a large unless you want to sound stupid and unsophisticated because venti sounds so much more posh and debonair. But that's part of the culture, and that's true regardless of where you go in the world. If you walk up to a Starbucks, those are the three sizes that you can get. And another thing that I've noticed is it doesn't, no matter, doesn't make a difference. Where you go in the world, the coffee tastes the same. I have tasted Starbucks coffee here in Fairfield, of course, with our bajillion Starbucks around the town, in Miami, in Dallas, and Frankfurt Airport. And it tastes exactly the same which tells me one of the DNA factors of this particular organism we call Starbucks is a commitment to consistency. They want to be the same regardless of where they are. And an interesting little story. Did you know Starbucks failed in Israel? You know why? Our uh, tour guide was telling us that Starbucks refuses to accommodate themselves to the culture of the Israelis. And the Israelis like their coffee a lot stronger than Starbucks is willing to make it. 
and they weren't willing to adapt, so Starbucks didn't make it in Israel because they are committed to consistency. It's part of what makes the, the, the coffee shop work. Uh, it's also, if you were to listen to the music, you'd realize it's a bit more on the trendy side. You're never, at least in my experience, you will never hear classical music in a Starbucks. You're going to hear Nora Jones. You might hear Bob Dylan, very eclectic, a little bit of an edge, and kind of a hip feel. If you want to listen to classical music, you've got to go to Pete's Coffee. I mean, because that's their particular DNA, it's kind of a bit more upscale, and go in there and listen to Lice Soothing Bach or Rachmaninoff. That's because Starbucks, that's part of its DNA, to be a little bit more on the edge. Um, I think another thing you would observe if you were to walk into a Starbucks is if you read stuff on their cups and see some of the stuff they sell, you'd see that they emphasize and have a concern in regard to the environment. So those are just some of the things that I think you could just simply look at what they're doing and say part of the DNA of this particular organization is its commitment to consistency, being trendy, and its commitment to the environment. That's just from observation. I haven't read anything on their webpage. That seems to me to be the DNA. It is the embedded convictions that make them tick. And understanding and knowing what those embedded convictions are, the DNA, are important. It's important for doing self-evaluation. How do you know that we're really staying on track unless we constantly go back to what are our core DNA and are we living them out? It's helpful for self-evaluation. It's helpful for consistency. We're going to be the same today, tomorrow, and next week. And also for keeping us on track and focused. Are we being who we're called to be? That's the embedded conviction or what we'll call for the next four weeks the DNA of the church. The question is, the one I raised at the beginning, what is, what are the DNA essentials of the church? What should characterize every church that calls itself Christian regardless of what time it exists in or where it is across the globe? Like Starbucks, you know, certain things exist, our core. What is it? That should be present in every church that calls itself Christian. Notice I use the word should, because I think there's a lot of confusion as to what those things are. Um, churches are so different today. You can find them at the movies. You can find them in storefronts or in traditional church buildings like this, or you can find them meeting in homes. A bunch of different forms. You can find them using guitars, basses, or organs. I mean, there's so much variation within the church that sometimes those core DNA factors get lost, and we forget them. So we are going to hopefully not only clarify and understand what they are, but my main purpose, if I just put it out there, is that we drive these things into the fabric of the soul of this church so that we live and breathe them, and we don't have to really even consciously think, are we doing these things? It's good to take time and self-evaluate from time to time, but they should live and breathe within us. They should also characterize every single ministry of this church, from teaching kids in the Sunday school rooms to what we do in our high life ministry, having D groups, to grief ministry, to our leaven ministry, to the men's ministry, to the women's ministry. These factors, these common DNA essentials must be present. I believe. I'm hoping, and I hope you'll pray with me that we will see these driven into the fabric of how we live and how we think and how we feel and how we worship, how we sing, how we live, how we act as fathers, mothers, as pastors, every fiber of who we are. So we're going to look at these four beginning with the first one this morning and the most important. 
is that one common DNA factor, the most important of all, that should distinguish God's people and define her through all the ages and no matter where you find her, is this. And that is a drive to delight and declare the glory of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. That within every congregation that calls itself Christian, what they should be known for is a drive to delight in and to declare the glory of Jesus Christ. Where that's missing, the church is not only unhealthy, it is compromised. Now you'll notice in what I said, delighting in and declaring, there's two dimensions to the glory of Christ. And that is the personal one in which we enjoy, are consumed with, and obsessed with his glory personally. We might call that the vertical dimension. And also this horizontal dimension, which is also necessary, and that is that we declare what we have experienced. That is, we want to experience it and express it. And the one logically leads to the other, is that where there is people or are people who genuinely delight in Christ and his glory, we will find people who want to talk about him. Where people are experiencing the truth of Christ, we will find people expressing who he is. It is natural. Therein lies the compulsion. And since this year we're focusing on the heart, trying to experience with the heart what we have come to know, at least in part with our minds, we're going to focus more on that first dimension on this particular morning. That part of the reputation of God's people, be it a church or an individual, should, should be... You know, that person's kind of crazy about Jesus. That's the best compliment you could get. Um, or, man, th- those people are just obsessed with him, consumed with him. Uh, whatever word you want to use, they're, they, they want to know him. They are craving, longing, thirsting, hungering for him. That is, that is a people who are consumed and delighting in the Lord. And when we do that, we will find the courage to speak of him to others. And where that's missing, evangelism and sharing Christ will be weak at best. You know, if I was to tell you right now that uh, the Pad Thai, it's a Thai food restaurant in uh, Sassoon, is the best Thai food in the world. Tum Yum Talay is to die for, it's their soup. And their red coconut curry, chicken, kang dang, is also to die for. And you said to me, well, how many times have you been there? And if I said, I haven't, I just heard it was good. You say, so you're telling me it's the best in the world, but you've never tasted it for yourself. That is, before we ever brag about something, it must be experienced by us. And then we'll find, of course, that we'll be talking about the best thing in life, and that is, namely, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is God's main point. He's God's main point in history, in creation, in redemption, and he is to be the main point in the church Always. So let me take you to a passage that not only supports that, but I'm hoping as we look at the truth, you'll find your soul experiencing some of the goodness and the greatness and the glory of Christ. That is John chapter 1. It's one of the one of a handful of passages that talk about the glory of Christ in amazing brush strokes. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. So I want to basically do two things with this passage. One, show you that indeed Jesus is the big point of God, big point of creation, big point of redemption, and therefore should be the main point of the church. But also in looking at this to 
but to whet our appetites and to feed our souls and to intensify our hunger and our delight in him. So here's the passage. John 1, verse 14 and following says, The Word became flesh. Many of you are, have heard this before at Christmas time and so forth. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then switching down to verse 16. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Let me pan back for a moment. And let me just ask you in this particular message to really work and work mentally at following because if you do i think your soul will be wowed if you don't you're going to be bored to tears this chapter john opens the gospel of john opens and introduces jesus to the world and to the people to he's writing and as we saw at easter time when he opens the chapter he opens it by alluding and associating Jesus with Genesis 1, quoting the first three words, in the beginning. That's how he introduces Jesus. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how Genesis starts, and John starts it. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he goes on to say that nothing that was created was created without him. In other words, in the opening introduction, he asserts that Jesus is the eternal Word of God, and he is the creator of all that we've come to know. So he magnifies who Jesus is by looking at him through the lens of Genesis. He does something similar in these verses, in chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. Only now he's going to want us and, and show us who Jesus is through the lens of Exodus 33 and 34. When I first discovered the connection between what John says here, that he's actually associating Jesus to some events that happened in Exodus 33 and 34, I just wanted to to fall to my knees and say, wow. Because he keeps referring back to the Old Testament to show us who Jesus is. So let me take you back. Because the background behind John 1, 14 through 18 is found in Exodus 33 and 34. This is where you've got to follow me. Then we'll come back to our passage and let's see if it makes a little bit more sense. For those who aren't familiar with the history of the church or what happens in Exodus, the second book in the Bible, it records for us the most significant act of deliverance in all of Old Testament history. Old Testament, mind you. The Jews to this day, the Jewish people to this day, still look back to that event as the single most important event in their history. And that is the event in which Most of us have seen Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston. God sends Moses, his chosen deliverer, down to Pharaoh, down to Egypt where his people are in bondage. And in and through him, through him, he unleashes a whole bunch of plagues on on Egypt, forcing, at the end of the day, forcing Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go, liberating them. He leads them through the Red Sea and draws them to this place called Mount Sinai where God meets with them. That's the single most important redemptive event in Old Testament history. And that's the event that has just happened prior to chapters 33 and 34. So that should give you a sense of where we are in history. 
Now let me read a couple of portions of chapter 33 and 34, and I'm going to stop and ask you to remember certain words because I want you to keep them in mind when we fast forward to John chapter 1. Chapter 33, I'm going to read uh, verse 7. It says, Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. It was a meeting place. Down to verse 9, tells you who met there. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud, as God kind of wrapped himself in a, in a cloud, would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke to Moses. So they're having a conversation through this tent of meeting, God and Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at his entrance to his tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face at this tent of meeting. Now, word I want you to remember is tent. And this idea of tent became, if you will, the symbol of God's dwelling with his people because later they would build him a tent and he would camp with his people as they would make their way through the desert, showing that he wanted to be in their midst. It was God's design to be with his people and an amazingly merciful act of love. God himself would live in a tent with his people. The tent is a sign of his dwelling. So keep in mind the word tent. Next word I want you to remember is the word face. Let's skip down to here, verse 18 of chapter 33. It says, Then Moses said, he makes an astounding request of the Lord. He says, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Moses asked, Lord, I want to see your glory. And God gives him a kind of a yes and a no. He basically tells him, I'll do a flyby. I'm going to cover you, and I'll let you see a diminished back perspective of who I am. Because no one can see my face and live. No one can see the face of God and live. The point to be made is that no one can see the face of God and live. Not Moses, not Isaiah. Isaiah, when he saw the Lord, only saw the hem of his garment and he fell apart before him. So Moses meets with him at a tent. He cannot see his face. And then the third word I want you to remember is glory. So tent, face, and glory. Verse 21, then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face you must not, it must not be seen. Now, that promise is fulfilled beginning in verse 4 of chapter 34. It says, So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones as the Ten Commandments and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hand. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming. It's really important. He's proclaiming. Words are coming. 
Words are being heard. The Lord, the sacred name, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And that's all the wonderful and amazing stuff of who God is. And then he turns it and almost seems to contradict himself, saying, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Well, wait, what happened to forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin? Now he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and the children's children of sin to the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And the main part I want to focus on is, is I want you to notice that as God reveals his glory, he couples it with a declaration of his word. Glory and word. And those words express the glory of his character. So the glory that Moses saw, and the most important, I think, glory for God's people, isn't so much the radiant light that made his face glow. Light is just a created thing. It's like God wraps it around him. He can wrap himself in darkness or in light. But the glory of God is declared in who he is, his character. The God that, that, that is revealed in the scripture is a God who is compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And it's those last two that I just mentioned, his love and faithfulness, or in the English Standard Version, the steadfast love and faithfulness, that become kind of the bright spots of hope for God's people through the ages, which is why you hear them often coupled through, the, through the, the songs of the psalmist, so that you hear things like, your, your love reaches to the heavens and your faithfulness to the skies. So those two things they looked for, they took refuge in, and they loved about God is that his love is unswerving and he is always faithful to his word. So that David could say, I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and faithfulness. So God shows him the glory, proclaiming his word, And that word is a word about his grace, his love, and his faithfulness. Now, with those things in mind, tent, face, and glory, let's come back to our passage. And let me read it again. And let me stop and make the connections in case you don't. Verse 14 again. The word, God's word, spoken word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word dwelling, as some of you know, is literally translated, he pitched his tent. Only this time the Lord did not pitch his tent with fabric or with the skins of animals. But this time, the Lord pitches his tent in human flesh. And it was part of God's design from the very beginning to dwell with his people in the most understandable, the most direct, and the most personal way possible. He became one of us. So that Christ becomes, and forever will be, the dwelling place of the Lord. The Word became flesh and made his tent with us. 
which is why the church for 2,000 years has hungered and thirsted for the return of Christ because he is the dwelling place of God, the place where we come face to face with him in a very personal way. His fingers and ears and eyes speaking our language. God who is on high looked far down on the heavens and earth and became one of us to dwell with us. So God is the dwelling, or Christ is the dwelling place of God. He is the tent of meeting. Now let me just skip down to, that's how that connects. The dwelling, the tent. Verse 18. John tells us that no one has ever seen God. This is a reference back to the fact that God says to, to Moses, no one shall ever see me and live. No one can see my face. Moses couldn't. All he got was an indirect, diminished view of the backside of his glory. And Isaiah couldn't. No human being has ever and can ever see the face of God and live. That's the assertion of the first part of verse 18. No one has seen, ever seen God, but, and there's a huge B-U-T here. That sounds strange. But there is one who has and has the capacity to see God's face directly. But God, the one and only, and the one of only, is used up in verse 14 to talk about Jesus and Christ. So there is one, notice he is referred to as God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. In other words, there is no other human being on the planet who has ever seen the face of God, but there is one who has. And therefore, he becomes the perfect revealer of all that God is. He becomes the authorized and ultimate autobiography of God. This is God saying, in flesh and blood, this is who I am, period. No monk, no priest, no religious figure of history can compare to this kind of qualification. Christ and Christ alone was capable of seeing God face to face, and he has come to make him known to us. So that Jesus could say out of this later in the Gospel of John, he could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am his face. You see me, you see him. So he is the tent dwelling place of God. He is the face and revealer of God to us. And then this is the third and final piece is his glory. As Moses saw the glory of the Lord only on the back parts, so the disciples confess here, John confesses here at the end of verse 14, that we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Let me put this together. As Moses saw the glory and heard the word proclaimed about God's steadfast love and faithfulness. So here in this passage, we have the word made flesh and seeing the glory. There's word and glory coupled together again. And that word and glory is full of something. It's full of grace and it's full of truth. Which I believe are the New Testament counterparts or equivalents to the Old Testament concepts of steadfast love and faithfulness. 
So those two beacons of hope that the psalmist speak of and look to, the steadfast love of the Lord that reaches to the heavens and the faithfulness that reaches to the skies, we find it embodied in the person of Jesus, full of grace and truth, full of the steadfast love of God and full of the faithfulness of God. So he is what they hoped for. He doesn't just show the steadfast love of God for his people and his faithfulness. And his love is a gracious love. That's why it can forgive sins. But he is and he's full of it. From the fullness of his grace or his steadfast love, we have received one blessing after another, which is a lousy translation. It should be translated grace upon grace. The word is grace. Or if, 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 the, if grace came through Moses, and there was grace that came through Moses, it was a gracious provision, the law and God bringing his people out, then Jesus unleashes grace like we've never seen before, the loving kindness. He is full, the fullness of it. And the rest of the Gospel of John is then going to unfold the glory of God's steadfast love and faithfulness, namely the, the grace and truth that is in Christ as he gives sight to the blind, as he raises the dead, as he feeds hungry people in the wilderness, all of which serve to point to deeper things. That he came to open the eyes of the spiritually blind and deliver those in darkness to light and to raise those who are dead to life. In the final act, for the word made flesh the glory of God, full of steadfast love and faithfulness or grace and truth to offer his life for his people on the cross. So that... The negative parts of chapter 33 would never come to pass on God's people in 34. When it says, Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children of their children's children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Is that ultimately God's love, his steadfast love, his grace absorbed that and unleashed God's love. All of it comes to us in this person that we call Jesus, who is the dwelling place of God. He is the face of God because he has seen God's face, and he is the glory of God, full of his steadfast love and his And those, my friends, those are the reasons why the church is supposed to be obsessed with him. Anybody who has had their eyes awakened to the fact that in Christ we see God's face, we have God's dwelling, and we see the glory of God's love and faithfulness knows that he becomes an obsession. And just as David looked to the stronghold of God's love as a refuge against sin, persecution, pain, and even as he looked towards death, 
So the church is to constantly look to Him. To keep our eyes fixed on Him. Because He is and will always be for His church and for you and for me. He will always be a refuge and strength in His love no matter what you're going through and what your trials and tribulations are. He will be your comfort when you find yourself depressed. He will heal the brokenhearted when you find yourself at the end of a tattered marriage. He will give you hope when you're facing the twilight years of your life knowing that He is your resurrection. That He is sovereign and will always hold you and never let you go. That despite the fact that the world seems so confusing, He knows what's going on and He overrules evil for His purposes so that we can trust Him completely. And the most important thing a church can do is say, look to Him. But we have spent so much time focusing on the techniques of how to fix everything that our eyes are down here and not up here. Techniques have their place, but the author of transformation is there and is in Christ. And as you look to Him, He will form and change you and give you joy and hope. Can't make the mistake as a church of keeping our eyes down low, worried about the techniques of trying to simply make marriages work. We have to get people to set their eyes on the one in whom God dwells, the one who represents God's face to us, and the one who is full of steadfast love and faithfulness, and He will never let you down. That is to be the first and most important DNA mark of any church and any believer is that I'm crazy about him, and I just, more than anything, I want to keep my eyes and heart delighting in, enjoying, and obsessed with this one who gave his life for me and is the fullness of God's love and his faithfulness. And I hope that characterizes every ministry in this room. If you're a small group leader, D group leader, men's ministry, women's ministry, grief ministry, or teaching Sunday school, may Christ be the one that is always and perpetually lifted up, because if he's not, we're compromising the most important mark of the Christian church that is and is alone the key to her transformation and her future. So will you pray with me? Don't tune me out yet, just because John's coming up here and Last week I said that one of the things the church is supposed to do is we're supposed to pray. And we need to do what the church family does. And so that's what we're going to do right now is, is pray to this end. See what time it is. So what I want to ask you to do first is I recognize that not everybody's delighting in the Lord or obsessed with him. And if it's not that way, then one of two things has happened. Either God hasn't opened your eyes yet or... You have been distracted by other things. And you have so eaten from other things that you no longer have an appetite for the Lord. And so what I'd like you to do is, on an individual basis, just come before the Lord and say, Lord, there are things that have distracted me, desires that are out of place, and I don't. It's not part of the DNA of who I am anymore, and I want it to be. So will you just spend a few moments in, 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 uh, just in confessing those things? Again, God is... Loving and gracious and merciful. We trust in that. That is our stronghold. 
But will you confess those things right now to him? What are those desires? And ask the Spirit to help you. What are those things that are distracting you and keeping this DNA from fully forming in your heart and life? So do that right now, you and the Lord. And then we're going to pray over each other.